Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. During the century after the Civil War, when the lost cause interpretation dominated historical writing, Union General Benjamin Butler was uniformly portrayed as the worst kind of Yankee. He was Beast Butler abusing the ladies of New Orleans or Spoons Butler looting their silverware. Today, with the lost cause in retreat everywhere, is it time to take a fresh look at the real career of Benjamin Butler? Professor Elizabeth Leonard thinks so. She's the author of Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life, and she joins us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not Eastern Carolina University, as ESPN would have it, but East Carolina University. Not speaking for ESPN or East Carolina University or anyone but myself, and my guest likewise speaks only for herself, as always on this show. Well, it's the first Wednesday of June, 2022, uh, and uh, ECU is, is on a roll on the baseball field. The last time... Uh, tonight's guest was on this show a couple years ago. ECU basketball, as the show was being recorded, was playing University of Houston. They were a top five national team, and ECU won that game. It's the greatest basketball victory in ECU's pathetic basketball history. Uh, This past weekend, ECU baseball beat University of Houston for the conference tournament championship on Sunday. So, uh, ECU will be playing University of Houston football this year on November 19th. So I'm going to ask our guest if she can write another book and have it published <laughs> by November 19th of this year so she can return to the show 
and help the pirates beat the Houston, uh, whatever they are, Cougars, I think, <laughs> uh, so we can beat them again. Uh, that may not be practical. I, I understand that. Um, in the meantime, uh, coming up before basketball is uh, well, it is baseball. We're we're just a gog here. ECU is number eight in the country, or, or seated number eight in the national tournament. I have bought my tickets for the regional tournament this weekend, and looking forward to uh, a few more games of baseball here in Greenville this year. Also looking forward to the Civil War Institute. Uh, at Gettysburg College. That is just uh, two weeks away now, less than that. I hope uh, to see some of you there. Uh, some of you have written to me already, and I'm looking forward to meeting you. We all wear name tags, so even though many of us have that Civil War enthusiast look, the boomer generation, aging, lack of hair, slightly overweight, etc., um, we will have name tags, so we'll be able to tell each other apart and uh, Look for me there. I'll be happy to, to chat with you all when we get the chance. That is June 10th through the 16th. I don't know if it's sold out or how they do that this year, but uh, you know, call them anyway, see if you can still get in. The uh, other event coming up on my calendar this year is the Civil War Tour, this hallowed ground put on by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, June 18 through the 26th. So I'll be jumping out of one event and into the next. Looking forward to that. Um, the uh, This week's show is sponsored, non-paying sponsor, as always, not even aware that they are a sponsor. Uh, this week is going to be the law offices of Jacob Jenkins Coward. Uh, that is actually the name of a, a, the freshman right fielder on ECU's baseball team, hyphenated last name. And the fans have nicknamed him uh, the Law Offices because that's what his name sounds like, as in, oh, the Law Offices hit another three-run jack to put us ahead. Um, so uh, thanks to the Law Offices of Jacob Jenkins Coward for their uh, support in the past season. And thanks to all of you who have donated to the show. Uh, much appreciated. When I was traveling with the recent Civil War uh, tour of, of uh, this hallowed ground, I, as I always do, end up buying more books than I can possibly read, and your donations to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund came in handy in that case. Uh, you can always contribute by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. The schedule there is up to date through the end of the season, and you can find the PayPal button click on it you don't have to have a paypal account uh it just takes money right out of your bitcoin fund or wherever you keep your money it, it finds out where your money is takes it from you and puts it in my account i don't know how it happens uh, it's not tax deductible don't make that mistake uh, but it is much appreciated uh, mark gaffney keeps that site up to date and and he appreciates your patronage too when you click on the links to our authors there and buy your books through that website uh, that, that sends a few pennies his way as well. So we've got two more shows this year, uh, this academic season, June of 2022. Next week, Sarah J. Purcell will be here talking about spectacle of grief, public funerals and memory in the Civil War era. And we will end the season on June 15th, cheering up hopefully with the show called Almost Live from the Civil War Institute. I'll be recording bits and pieces while I'm there. Our department just got some new 
field recording equipment I can borrow, and I'll be using that and playing it back to you. So if you can't go, you'll hear at least some chats with people who are there. Um, one more housekeeping item. While you're at impedimentsofwar.org, you can, of course, purchase the uh, much-prized merchandise there, the T-shirt you'll want to wear at Civil War Institute, or weddings, christenings, barbecues, any event. It, it's always appropriate. I did hear from one uh, friend of the show who said he bought a T-shirt and then has been subject to a relentless barrage of spam from the company T Public, who actually produced the shirts. Uh, I have them in my spam folder, so anything they send me, I never see it. Uh, but if you're getting too much spam from T Public, let me know. Uh, I, I'm not married to that company for T-shirts, and if, if they're causing a problem, we can always look elsewhere. Uh, in the meantime, the spam filter is your friend, uh, because I, I can't turn off the spigot of, of their relentless marketing, if that's what they're doing to you. Well enough marketing here let's talk tonight with the john j and cornelia v gibson professor of history emerita at colby college in waterville maine it's elizabeth leonard longtime friend of the show returning for a third appearance um elizabeth uh, welcome back to the show thank you for having me jerry and i've i had somehow not remembered how very funny you are <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did, you, you think I'm joking about getting a book ready by November 19th. We need I've, that game. I've enjoyed listening to your introduction so much I've been trying not to burst out laughing. <laughs> well, th thank you. Uh, the, you know, it's funny, I get email from listeners, and uh, it's divided fairly evenly when they comment on the introductory comments. <clears throat> Half of them say, will you shut up and get to the guests? We don't care about you. And the other half say they enjoy hearing what's going on at ECU or with my kids' soccer games back 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and my response in either case is, you get what you pay for. The, the show is free, <laughs> so uh, I'll just keep doing it. Well, what I've really enjoyed this book, this biography of Benjamin Franklin Butler. And the first question I had uh, <clears throat> ready to ask you before I even opened the book was, you know, why, what would bring you to, to Butler? And then I read the dedication, uh, learning of your, uh, uh, your your predecessor there, Professor Harold Raymond at Colby College, and uh, his interest in Butler, and the fact that Butler is, in fact, an alumnus of Colby College. And so I, I guess the, the attraction makes a lot more sense in that case. Right. Although I will say that... Um I resisted the pull for some time, um, and of course I knew, you know, for most of my time at Colby, probably all the time that I was there, and I came there in uh, 1992, I knew of the Butler connection, and I had been encouraged by various people to pursue it, but I had other projects that I was involved with, and, and, and I also suffered um, a little bit of Bowdoin envy uh, uh -huh. because of Joshua Chamberlain and how, you know, they have Joshua Chamberlain and I, my early attitude was and all we had was Benjamin Butler. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I resisted the pull until I really got urged to look into him more carefully and I, I didn't have to look too far to start thinking, aha, this is why 
Raymond was interested in him. This is why people have encouraged me to look deeper. And uh, and I have no shame now. Uh, I have no more boat and envy. I have no shame about our connection to Mr. Butler. So. Well, well, having read this book, I would certainly agree with that. I, uh, for listeners who are unaware, Harvard, Yale uh, pales into the, the, in comparison, Michigan, Ohio State is nothing next to the uh, uh, fierce and bitter rivalry between Colby College and Bowdoin College. <laughs> and my, my older daughter uh, is a Bowdoin graduate, so uh, they have a fair amount of my cash in their coffers. And uh, when I first saw this, my thought was, yeah, well, you know, Bowdoin, we've got Chamberlain. Uh, but what a remarkable story. Um, Benjamin Butler, we all know, everyone listening to this show, knows the spoons story or the beast story and that's all that most of us know uh let's let's start at the beginning with, right. with butler um he's he's a, a, a troublemaker is not the word he, he's he's the straw that stirs the drink right from the start of his career <laughs> that's a good way to put it and i think that you know troublemaker fits too in some ways i think he would have enjoyed um, being seen that way. And I know that as a student or as an alum of Colby, he often um, encouraged uh, recollections of his time at the college that uh, cast him in that light, shall we say. So uh, he had a great sense of humor and he did like to stir the pot, stir the drink. Um, but he was so much more than that. And uh, one of the things that I found you know, once I started looking at him in any detail, one of the things I found most interesting was the question of how people depicted him and claimed to remember him and how there were these very disparate yeah. memories of this man. Uh, and I was very interested in you know, how do we parse that? How do we understand what's going on on here? And I think I have a good sense of it. Um, well, politically, he was, you know, Jacksonian Democrat. And if we start from the Civil War era, we see Democrats are opposed to Republicans. Republicans are opposed to slavery. Democrats are either supportive or neutral in theory about slavery. But slavery doesn't seem to have played much role in his politics. He was much more interested in, in labor issues. Right. Early on, yes, labor was the focus of his attention, and that was very natural given, you know, his own uh, early life in poverty, his mother having become a boarding house keeper in Lowell, where the factories and the women workers were uh, becoming uh, so important. And uh, that was his where his attention was. Uh, and frankly, I don't think slavery in terms, you know, racial slavery in the South, it, it really caught his attention very much. He was much more interested in other things. But once he came in contact with slavery, uh, he began to really shift. And he he may have gone forward rather haltingly. Uh, to become an anti-slavery person, but uh, he did not ever turn back. You know, it was it was a process that didn't always go smoothly. But once he got rolling, he never turned back. 
That's one of the things that made this book so interesting to me was the the sense of a journey that here's someone right. who starts out you know, really paying little attention to slavery and uh, that's true of a lot of white northern political figures uh, including Abraham Lincoln for that matter uh, early in his career but over time it becomes uh, dominant and, and Butler really does have a long way to go he, he attends the Democratic Convention in 1860 and ends up you know voting for Jefferson Davis uh, as a candidate at that point so he, he, he's really got a, a distance to travel right although of course he would say and I think it's a good argument that his vote for Jefferson Davis, many votes at that convention for Jefferson Davis should not be viewed through the lens of what we know about what happened in 1861. You know, nobody really knew. I mean, certainly he knew Davis was a slaveholder, but nobody knew Davis was going to turn on the Union um, at that point. So, um you know, he has a he he reasons his way through to explaining you know those votes. But it's true he was definitely not anti-slavery at, at that time, uh, and and it takes the war, it takes what happens at Fort Monroe, it takes uh, many other experiences to really build that momentum in him. So he he finds himself belonging to a Democratic Party that, in his view, is losing its way becoming radical becoming a disunion party uh, and he's, he's trying to find someone who's not a fire eater and trying to stay with it as long as he can uh, we'll talk about the rest of that transition and especially what happens when he joins the federal war effort when we come back we're talking tonight with elizabeth d leonard author of benjamin franklin butler a noisy fearless life i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio Talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Elizabeth Leonard, author of Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life. Elizabeth, let me ask you about the uh, cover illustration before we get further into uh, Ben Butler's life. It is a striking image of the general uh, with a beard, not a picture I think I've ever seen before. Well... So many people have said that to me, and that's exactly the point of the cover. Um, it's a very, it's a rare picture of him. He did not have a beard for most of his life. Most people haven't seen him with a beard, but he's also instantly recognizable despite <laughs> the beard. Um, and when I, when the uh, designers at UNC Press were thinking about the cover, they asked me if I had any constraints uh, or suggestions. And I said, I don't accept this one very big one, which is that I do not want you to use any image that mocks him in any way, because this was so common for him to be mocked. And there are a couple of images in the book from, uh, uh, you know, Illustrated's where you can see the kind of mockery he endured uh, throughout the latter part of his life. And I didn't want any of that. Uh, And so they chose this picture, which I think is a fabulous picture. But what I love most about it is that it really does make people think, I know him, but I don't know him. And that's really the point of the book. You think you know him, you Mm -hmm. see him, you recognize him but you haven't seen him this way before. And uh, so the picture, I think the image is, it's a beautiful image. They did a great job. And it also reflects my goal with the book, which is to say, here he is, but you ain't seen this guy before in this way. It, it, it's a great thing when, when the, the whole team can come together because authors don't always have input into their covers right. uh, no. or enough input. And it, it's great when, when the authors, uh, can can get a cover that expresses what's in the book, not what yeah, the yeah. thinks. No, they're a wonderful press. I, I'm so honored to have been able to work with them again. So the the first, well, Butler is, is well known before the war. He, he's politically active. Uh, he immediately wants to participate in the war. Did he have any military experience before the Civil War? He did have experience with the Massachusetts Volunteer Militia, so state militia. He did. He had quite a bit of experience with them. He had not as much experience as he would have liked to have had. As you know, he wanted very much to go to West Point uh, and was not able to go there for a variety of reasons. But I think the biggest reason was that his Mommy wanted him to go to to Waterville College, which is the original name of Colby College, which had Baptist connections, and um, she had had a very strong religious faith and wanted him to go there. So he went there and never did go to West Point, but he did have training with the Massachusetts Volunteer Militia. Nonetheless, when the war starts, he becomes one of the first uh, uh, the first crop of 
volunteer major generals yep. that Lincoln creates. Yep. So how but how prominent was he to get that honor? Well, he was he was uh, prominent in Massachusetts uh, in the militia, and he was also very forceful. He said, I want to have an important role, uh, and this was very much his nature. Uh, I've grown quite fond of him in doing all this research on his life and spending all this time with him in my uh, thinking about the book and writing the book, but I'm not blind to his uh, great ambitious nature and um, self-confidence, you know, and he was, he put himself in a position where he could become one of the first people on the ground to uh, defend Washington and get into Maryland and, and so on. He he really negotiated a position for himself very quickly. And he had the resources and he had the connections uh, to make that happen. So he's in Maryland early in the war with one of his, his regiments from Massachusetts. And he rather oversteps his, his instructions from General Win- Winfield Scott when he essentially seizes the city of Baltimore. Yep. That that sounds like, uh, I guess, a characteristic thing for him to do. Yes, quite. I, I, I think he, um, if he was given vague orders, uh, vague enough to allow him to um, assert his own plans, uh, he was certainly happy to do that. And... The, the orders did not constrain him from marching into Baltimore, so off he went. And and Sc- Winfield Scott learned subsequently that he needed to be a little more specific about the chain of command. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, later in the war, when it came to uh, 1864 and working with uh, General Grant, um, I there was sort of an opposite effect. You know, I, I talk about how Grant got a little frustrated with Butler saying, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? Should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? And, you know, Grant sort of takes the opposite approach and says, I just told you what your ultimate goal is. Just go do that, you know, and I don't need to hear the details. But early on in the war, I think Butler was a little more, um, you know, sure of himself. And, and, and in fact, what he did, you know, probably saved Maryland for the Union. So, what well, from there he gets uh, he, he's eager to have an independent command and he gets one when he's sent down to Fort Monroe on the tip yes. of the Virginia Peninsula, yep. and here I guess we'll get right to it. This is possibly the thing he is best known for, other than the New Orleans uh, occupation, right? And and, and uh, I think many people would say the most significant thing that he did, or maybe that any general did in the Civil War. Uh, off the battlefield. Uh, yeah. When and and I'll read their names. I I always forget to do this when I'm lecturing on this. Uh, you know, we know who Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins were. The three guys on the moon. Uh, Frank Baker, Shepard Mallory, James Townsend. Those names, to me, are almost as important in American history. Right. Uh, the, and we three... lose track of them immediately. Uh, you know, I actually yeah. have a blog post for UNC Press. I don't think they've posted it yet, but it's about how, you know, there they are. They're so important, and their stories are dropped almost immediately, you know, <laughs> in yeah, the, the mix of, you know, what happens after the contraband policy is established. 
So, so Baker, Mallory, and Townsend show up at Fort Monroe where Butler's in command. They say, we want to be on your side. We want to be free. We, we protect us. Um, but Butler's facing, I mean, he, he doesn't have clear instructions what to do. And you've got the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, so so what, how, how does he view this? What, what's his? Well, I, I would say that it, over a period of, you know, a day, maybe less than a day, from the time they arrive, he interviews them, he thinks about it, he's a lawyer, he's a brilliant thinker, he's a clever thinker as well. He's not just logical, but he's also clever and wily. <laughs> <laughs> and he takes this situation in hand. These three men who have asked for protection do not want to go back to their owners uh, and know that if they go back to their owners, they will be put to work on behalf of the Confederacy, which is not a you know something that he wants to see either. And he works his way towards a, um, a plan that basically he delivers to uh, a representative of the slave owners who comes and says, we want them back. And he says, well, you have two choices. You can either pledge allegiance to the United States, in which case I will give them back to you. Or if you don't and you claim to be independent, as Virginia has asserted its independence very recently, then the fugitive slave law, you understand, no longer applies to you. So I am not required to return that to you. Mm. And uh, of course, the representative won't um, pledge allegiance, and therefore Butler says, well, in that case, I'm not returning them to you. I'm not bound to do that. And he later said he didn't really think it was the best legal argument, but it was a great moral argument, and it was the right argument um, to make. And he keeps them, he protects them, and within, you know, over the course of the next several days and weeks, hundreds of other enslaved people flock to his protection through without cell phones without you know yeah the the news goes out and they start flooding to fort monroe and and it now he when he writes back for instructions now he says so you know what do i do i have to have to can't let these people starve um I guess he's learning. He doesn't get much instruction back, and he goes, okay. And I think that they, he has, in a way, put the federal government in a difficult position, but he's also given the federal government an open an open door, you know, or a path. And, and very soon, Congress is, you know, passing the Confiscation Act, and um, then, you know, the, the process is going to begin to move. But I think that it's wrong to uh, underestimate the importance of this particular step, which both Lincoln and, you know, Cameron, uh, you know, the War Department, the executive, um, all, they let him, they let him do it. They don't try to stop him. And that's probably the best they could do at that point. I mean, the government Mm -hmm. has not yet established a policy for what to do with runaway slaves. So. No, it it is the, the, the more I look at it and then reading your account of it again, the more I, I think this really is, is just a, a seminal moment, a critical moment in the uh, the, the emancipation process. Yeah, 
Now, Butler follows this. He, he wants to win fame on the battlefield, uh, he, not just as an administrator. And he uh, he has uh, an unsuccessful skirmish, but he, he leads the expedition to Hatteras, Cape, uh, uh, to the, the Outer Banks and, and uh, in North Carolina and captures okay. an island. So, you know, he, he, he's doing all right, but he, he gets relieved of command. Uh, is this because he was too troublesome uh what what how did he lose that job yeah i i think that he is a little bit certainly for winfield scott he you know he he's prickly and he is perhaps uh a little overly sure of himself um and i think maybe there's some sense that he's he's really too powerful i mean if you look at the june Harper's Weekly, June 1st, I think it was, Harper's Weekly um, cover. You know, there is this sense among many people that this is the person who's going to save the union. He's sort of come out of nowhere to be this very much um, respected and revered and um, glorified figure. Uh, of course, Americans love heroes that they can knock off their pedestals at the first opportunity, and I guess, mm-hmm. and he suffers from that too. Uh, but I think there's a, you know, he is not the easiest person uh, to work with. So, you know, I think that th- there is there is that. And then there's, you know, he he does push the envelope, um, so to mm-hmm. speak. It was interesting to read about his uh, his interest in science. He oh yeah, he has has his troops vaccinated against smallpox. Yep. exploring ballooning. He's, yep. he's thinking about all kinds of forward things. Well, then then we come to the uh, the other big thing during the war for which he's remembered: the occupation of New Orleans. So he doesn't spend much time in the wilderness. He goes does some recruiting in New England. Now he's got a new job. And uh, here again, everybody listening to the show knows uh, the reputation that Butler has in New Orleans, and it's not a good one. Uh, is it, Well, I, I know the answer to this. If I say is it justified, I, I, clearly not by what you've written. Uh, how did, how, what was it like to write this part of the book where you're writing about this guy who's so unpopular – over the last century and a half of historiography and to be finding all these things that contradict that. Uh, Well, as you probably can tell just by looking at the structure of the book, so the book covers his whole life. Mm -hmm. There are three chapters on the war uh, and there's a whole chapter on New Orleans. (laughs) You know, so in in a four-year war, you know, there's three chapters, one whole chapter, a big one is, mm-hmm. you know, all about New Orleans because it does require uh, some unpacking. And I think that there are a couple of places w- in the book where I kind of step outside of the narrative and talk to the reader in a way. Yes. Although, and, and this is one of the places where I do a little bit of that where I sort of try to set it up in a different way like this we have to look at this in a different way it's like I have a little bit of a conversation with the reader mm-hmm. about what's coming and also some of the conclusions that I make it was it was hard and it's hard because his personality is a challenging one I can understand um why people found him difficult and you know why he got that nickname 
beast. I don't agree with it, but I certainly mm-hmm. understand what's in play that leads to that kind of descriptor and leads to it, you know, especially after the war with the lost cause becoming the most uh, familiar way he's uh, described. But I, I kept wanting to see it from his perspective, from the perspective of the conditions that he was under. How did people see him at that time? Um, and I just kept finding inform- information and insights that really suggested that there was a, a, a problem with distilling that complicated, difficult period of challenge in New Orleans into just a term like beast <laughs> or spoons, you know. <clears throat> I mean, it was just, I think we fail often to think about the conditions under which he was operating uh, there at that point in the war, so far from Washington, in a city where the rebellious attitude was so powerful. Mm -hmm. And he, yeah, maybe he did act like a beast. But as I said in another blog post I wrote, Let's use that term the way Urban Dictionary uses it, <laughs> not the way the Lost Cause people want to use it, but that he was a beast. He was fierce and determined to succeed and uh, unrelenting. And he did, you know, he I, did I, I, I love the idea of the, the modern terminology. And from young people in my life, I learned that the just about biggest person on Twitter is Greenville, North Carolina's own Mr. Beast, uh, who has uh, zillions of of followers. Well, we're going to talk more about uh, Mr. Beast Butler, uh, who is the subject of the book, Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life, with our guest tonight, the author Elizabeth D. Leonard. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Elizabeth D. Leonard, author of Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life. We've been talking about Butler's time in New Orleans, where he enters this chaotic and rebellious city, uh, cleans it up, enforces law and order, puts in a quarantine to stop yellow fever, taxes the rich uh, to support the, the helpless poor, which the rich don't like, uh, hangs an individual uh, who had desecrated the U.S. flag. And then I, I did not know the detail that you cite later in the book. Uh, later in his life, he's responsible for providing government relief for the widow of the right. man that he hanged. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are two sides to every story. One of the things that really struck me about his time in New Orleans is the use of African-American soldiers, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, as we were saying a few minutes ago, he comes into the war not not much of an anti-slavery person. At at, at Fortress Monroe, he comes up with a contraband policy that will push emancipation forward. And now in New Orleans, he supports the idea of recruiting black troops. And I, it was so Butler of him to to say, let's start with the free Jean de Coulour, the the. the the colored soldiers that the Confederacy had recruited, right? And they right. want they say we're willing to serve the U.S. And he says, well, the rebels can't say we're giving arms to black men because they already gave them the arms. Exactly. Uh, and what, he basically it, takes a whole bunch of the language that was used in yeah. recruiting them and and turns mm-hmm. it into his own, you know, um, orders for them. Yeah. It, it, he 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 is. A, in many ways irresistible as you read this book you, you, you think man this guy is sharp um, so so he en- he not only does that but he also does the kind of thing that Sherman starts to do around Savannah that the federal troops do in the, the Sea Islands uh, creates a, a an oasis of free labor uh, right. with special orders 441 can you talk about that well he uh, he was very interested in not just arming black soldiers, but also uh, providing opportunities for black civilians to survive and thrive. And But he also recognized that it was important for them to have the chance to engage in labor and to prove themselves that way. And and so he did. He made that experiment there, and then he, you know, and and it was largely successful. So he he's got uh, a start to a free labor policy going. He's recruiting black troops. He's cleaning up the city. Uh, at the same time, he's enraging Southerners by 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 poking them where they are most sensitive in terms of personal honor. Uh, with with the woman order, for example. Yes, yeah. He, he knew what he, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> he did, and and I and I think it's interesting, and I tried to bring this out uh, in the book too. That there also, I mean, he did enrage many white Southerners, and the woman order 
certainly uh, had that effect. But there were many white New Orleanians also who were very grateful for the things that he did for the city. And, um, you know, even ones who had been on the side of the Confederacy came round. And when he was replaced, there were many who begged to have him return to the city so that he could continue to have the admin. He was administratively extremely effective. And uh, people who sought order uh, appreciated that. Uh, you cite, I think, David Work, I think it's his first name, Work's right. book on political generals uh, and how the uh, uh, some political generals like Butler, who are not West Pointers, may not be the best on the battlefield, but they can be extremely effective at administration, right. and, and Butler is certainly one of those. But he does get another battlefield role. He, he, he's now put in command of the Army of the James in 1864 yep. under Grant, and so he's got the mission of seizing Petersburg, and uh, as as a military leader, he, he does not do a very good job of this. Well, yes, and he, of course, famously, you know, gets bottled up in Bermuda Hundred, <laughs> as as Grant put it. But you know, there's also been some uh, reflection on that, and Grant even himself reflected on it. <laughs> perhaps um, painted Butler with a bad brush, uh, a worse brush than he deserved. Um, and, and being the troops that, you know, Butler was bottled up with were sort of extracted for Grant's purposes, so it wasn't entirely a loss. But he did have successes in commanding the black troops, too. And not only successes um, with them, but as somebody who inspired them and trusted them and gave them um, a sense of their value to the Union Army that they never forgot. And I don't think anybody else of his stature, really. I'm trying to think if there was anybody else that black soldiers loved so much as <laughs> they loved and appreciated Butler. From the army of the chains uh, he yeah and they they perform well under him uh, yeah. new market heights is, is right. probably the most famous example where they win right. numerous medals of honor uh he in goes on the first which he delivered to christian fleetwood the first to a black soldier yeah he's so he, he and he fights for fairness and fairness and pay and fairness yeah. and treatment as prisoners of war that they be exchanged the same as white soldiers so right. so certainly he does stand up for his troops in that regard he undertakes the the Dutch Gap Canal project you know Grant had right. his canal project in Vicksburg Butler has one here in Petersburg they don't work no. uh, and and he also leads troops at Fort Fisher Right. Which, again, does not lead to the fall of the fort. But he but argues that, that he... It to a bloody sacrifice of his soldiers, which was the point mm -hmm. of argument he had with the second attempt, you know, the more successful attempt at Fort mm -hmm. Fisher. Yeah, so, so he, he, yes, he argues that his his methods were, were didn't lead to the same high losses, and, and right. uh, you have to get credit for that. So... There are a number of points in the book, as you mentioned a moment ago, where you, you engage the reader directly, uh, either through the text or in, in the, the 
reference notes where you talk about the historiography and what other historians have said. Um, did you feel a, a tug here? You say early on that you every biographer runs the risk of getting uh, you know close to their subject, although there right. are some some horrible subjects that nobody would get close to, right. uh, of, of course. But short of that, did, did you find yourself concerned that, that, that this was that you were getting too close to Butler? Or too fond of him, you mean? Too fond of him. That's the like word I'm too biased for. On, in his favor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 of course, it's possible. Historians are not objective. Historians are human. You know, mm-hmm. I saw him uh, through my own eyes, and I also saw him. I will, you know, I have to admit, I, I, I wrote and revised this book in a period in American history, our period, which. Mm-hmm is grappling with some of the same issues he struggled so hard with in his day. And I felt a great deal of um, connection to him. I don't, uh, uh, if I thought I had, you know, overstepped, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously I just don't to think that mm. I, but I can't, I can't know for sure. I do think if I did, Perhaps I will be forgiven for swinging, you know, for taking the pendulum too far in the other direction a little bit for him. But I, I really feel quite, quite strongly that I gave him a fair hearing, and I hope throughout the book, it's also clear that I'm not blind to the mm-hmm. parts of him that would be, you know, that that he really did deserve to be sort of scolded for or criticized for. But the amount of invective that has been heaped upon his head, I mean, mm-hmm. you'd have to dig a long time to get past all of that to, you know, create a pure, uh, you know, perfect image of, of Benjamin Butler. So I, I don't think that I, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty solid representation. But of course, I would think that, wouldn't I? Well, it, <laughs> we we all like our work, uh, or we wouldn't do it the way we do. But and certainly, it's uh, very heavily doc. You know, I I did my very best to, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think that I I one of the things that um, I looked at that others maybe haven't looked at as much is how Black Americans saw him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and I just don't think I've seen that in other treatments of him. And I tried very hard to keep going because that question kept pounding. And why do some people hate him so much and other people love him so much? And who loves him and who hates him? And it wasn't just blacks uh, who were so fond of him and so respectful and so grateful to him. Mm-hmm. So many black Americans, but also the poor so it was poor whites and people involved in labor and so on. The people that really disliked him were white Southerners, mm-hmm. particularly of the planter class, and also rich white Northerners, whom he also did not hesitate to challenge. Well, we, we've talked about his Civil War career, and you devote chapters to his post-war career in which he is... In some ways, the most interesting man in the world is in those yeah, old beer commercials. Yeah, and he's like Forrest Gump, but yes, <laughs> he, 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 everywhere. 
He's everywhere. Important thing. Forrest Butler, I used to call him. <laughs> He's in Congress during Reconstruction. He argues the government's case in ex parte Milligan. Uh, he leads the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. He ends up... Civil Rights Act, the KKK Act, you know, he's everywhere. And and then he... The Haymarket Affair in the 18th... It, it, it really is remarkable. Yeah. And, and now, he, we said at the beginning of the show he's a Jacksonian Democrat. By the time he's in the war years, he's supporting the administration and becomes a Republican. But as the Republican Party becomes focused on, on business and away from the the travails of the freedmen, he moves back, but not to the Democrats, so then he becomes a, a Greenback Party man, uh, which is consistent with what you just said about supporting the poor right. uh, uh, and, and the laboring classes, and he he, he changes parties, but, but he makes the argument that I'm not the one who changed, it's the parties who changed right. around me. My principles never change. Right. And truly, when... Um, truly, I I found that persuasive, I guess I can say. Because mm-hmm. when I looked at the things that he was saying at one point in his life, it's still the things that he's saying later in his life. For, I mean, he has a journey, and he does evolve. Um, so he's not a static figure who never changes. But he's not a flip-flopper, which is no. how he was so often, oh, he just goes to whichever party he can win in, and, you know, he doesn't really have any principles. I I think he had very clear principles, and if I, you know, in reading his letters and his documents and other people's materials about him and so on in his day, um, he seems quite consistent, evolving for sure on certain issues, but very much focused on, as he said, the underdog. I'm with the underdog. <laughs> it is my nature. I am and with the underdog in every fight. You he know. follows it all the way through. He supports women's yeah. suffrage when other men yeah. are not doing it and so on. Last time you were on the show, I asked you the Civil War talk radio time machine question and uh, who you'd like to meet, and you answered, I believe, Butler, because you were working on this book. Um I'm going I have a guess of who you will name this time, other than Benjamin Butler. If you could go back for 30 minutes again, who would you want to talk to? From in relation to this story, it it, it, it in your whole life. Oh, you know, any Civil War era person. Yeah, boy. You know who I'd really like to meet that comes to mind right away is West. Ah, I guessed it. Yeah. You did you? I did. It, the Albert mystery West. is uh, West, this wonderful man who was his body man for the last, what, 15 years, 16 years of his life, um, about and, whom we know not nearly enough. And, as is so, so often true of the, the people in that position in life, we don't know anything about them, but they knew the subject better than anybody. Yeah. Well, sadly, we are out of time. It flew ah. by, as always. Um, listeners, do yourselves a favor, get a copy of Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life. Uh, rethink Ben Butler. Maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, but you'll enjoy the process of uh, revisiting what you thought you knew. Uh, the author is Elizabeth D. Leonard, who has been our guest tonight. Elizabeth, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.